Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 15 of the Laity Podcast. This is Andrew here with Stephen. Actually, in Athens, we're together. Live in Athens. Yeah, for the first time cool. in, I think, ever on, on this round of the we're, podcast. We're, we're normally, we're normally uh, over Skype, so this is, this is, this is a treat. This is the, the upgrade. And we're here with a very special guest. Really excited and grateful to have Richard Beck on with us, joining us from, I would imagine you're, you're in Abilene, correct? Yep, Abilene, Texas. Good to be with you guys. Man, thank you so much for... Uh, taking some time to, to hang out. We were cutting up on some uh, Church, Church of Christ connections a, a little bit ago before we hit record. And uh, Richard, I, I when I've had guests on over the last like month or two, I always do this great job of butchering introductions for each person. So to put you on the spot, would you be willing to introduce yourself uh, just in terms of giving our listeners a taste of kind of how you, you, you're a multi, a renaissance kind of multifaceted, talented individual. Well, could you give us maybe a little intro of uh, who you are? How you introduce yeah. yourself? Yeah, well, my day job is I'm the chair of the psychology department at Abilene Christian University, but mostly I show up on podcasts because I've written a lot of books and do a lot of speaking uh, about the intersection of psychology and theology. And I have a blog, Experimental Theology, that that uh, gets a little bit of read. And so, yeah, that's where I enter these kind of conversations about faith and church is the intersection of psychology with Christianity. Fantastic. Yeah. And we, so Stephen and I kind of came across Richard, I think mutually through Luke Norsworthy's uh, podcast, which we really need to give Luke a lot of credit because I think we say that for every guest that we have. Like, so I heard about it through Luke's podcast. Yeah, really. um, but um, yeah, I th- and, and I think Luke turned us on not only to kind of your work more broadly, but specifically your, your blog, which Stephen and I both follow on a daily basis. And uh, we definitely want to say like, sincerely, thank you so much for years and years and years of content and exploration and faith. And what I just want to say in in terms of an intro, when I think of you, Richard, and kind of what I've been blessed with, and I think other people have as well, you have this amazing ability to, to be, you know, you could go super, super deep theologically, psychologically, clearly you're, you're qualified and a professional, but it doesn't lose a real flesh and blood element, um, in my mind and, and some of the, your own practices that you write about, um, from prison ministry to, um, uh, just any number of things that we may or may not hit here. Um, I really appreciate your commitment to to the local church, to showing up in flesh and blood. And that's something I, I I really, I want to emulate more and more. And I, I sincerely appreciate that from you. Thank you. No, I try to do that. I mean, I want, I think, I think Christian's in the publishing world and the speaking world struggle a lot with that celebrity culture. Yeah. And, and I want people when they read anything or hear anything I say that really what they ultimately hear is just, just a guy who's trying to work out his faith, you know, at a specific city with a specific group of people. Um, and, and what that looks like. And so thanks. I've, I've, that's something I want to communicate. And I had a qu- question in terms of, so you've been blogging. We talked about it since like 2006. Um, again, you're at experimental theology. How old were you in 2006? I was a sophomore <laughs> in high school. I don't know how old I was. 16. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Uh, I was not writing. Yeah. But blogs, but, um, so you've been writing for, for years and years. You, you've been speaking, you've had a number, you've put out a number of books, many of which we've read, including unclean slavery of death, um, and others. But I, my question to you, all these years later, you're still putting out content. You're obviously a professor professionally. What do you find, uh, to be kind of your, I don't know, your core sort of motivation at this point, not, not in terms of the professional work like at Abilene, but even the blogging, the authorship when you, versus maybe when you started, like what, what really, what inspires you to kind of do what you do today? I think at the start, I still have the same motivation is at the start, I just wanted a place to put my thoughts. And so that's why I picked the name experimental theology, that I would have thought balloons, I would have integrative ideas. I didn't really know where those fit in the research literature. Um, they, it seemed like I was thinking things that didn't fit neatly in psychology, even psychology and Christianity. And they also, they also didn't fit in theology journals either. And blogging had just started. And I was like, well, here's a place where I could kind of self-publish. I can put those things out there. And, uh, you know, when you start off, you don't think anybody's going to read it. So it's just there as an archive, as a journal. I treat it as kind of like an online journal. And I think that's still, you know, I'll think of something and I'll like, where am I going to put this idea? Uh, And the blog is the place where I could put it. The, The motivation that developed since then is like 
these podcasts, the, all of my books have flowed out of the out of the blog invitations, and so there's a part of me that now kind of thinks this might sound cheesy, but it's kind of like a ministry in that sense. And so one of the things that always blesses me whenever I run into a pastor or a preacher and says your your blog has been very helpful to me. I use your book for a sermon series, or people write me all the time and say, my faith was like on the edge, and your blog helped me keep a hold of faith at a really tough time. Right. So there's a, there's a part of me that keeps wanting to do it because I keep hearing back that it blesses people, and that's that's been a growing motivation over time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I It certainly has been a blessing in my life. I mean, I ran into the air stuff right at just the right time, and you kind of... You got me into a good rabbit hole. It's been a lot of fun. So yeah. good. Thank um, you. So I'm I'm curious from where you started, see 2006, so we're looking at 12 years ago. Uh, how has like the main concern that you're trying to address uh, in your work shifted over the years? Like what do you what are you worried about really trying to kind of um, to to focus in more on right now uh, because of where we are you know, in this time and place that maybe wasn't on the radar when you started? I think when I started out, there was, it was just catching the wave where a lot of people, post-evangelicals, post-fundamentalists, were going through that season of deconstruction. I don't know if that's a word you guys use a lot on your podcast, but people kind of rethinking scripture, rethinking church. And a lot of the, what a lot of the early certainties of their faith walk were, getting shaken. And so I think I caught that early wave of trying to, so this is, these are people like the Rob Bells and the Peter Enzes and the Rachel Held Evanses and mm-hmm. the Nadia Boltzwebers. These people that were kind of trying to articulate a new way of thinking about Christianity, the Brian McLarens, I think in those early days. And Peter Rollins is another name. Yeah. And so I, I was a part, I was writing a lot online that kind of was, was working along those lines. So if you read the early years of my blog, um, a lot, a lot of conversations about doubt and how doubt is not always bad, but can be a resource, and so on and so forth. The last five, six years, though, I've been shifting to what a lot of people are describing as reconstruction. So your faith has been deconstructed, but now how do you put it back together again in a faithful way? Right. And so, in many ways, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said that I, I'm astounding more and more as like. Uh, a minister to progressive post-evangelicals. Yes. We're trying, so I'm trying to kind of help them not just dwell in doubt. Because one of my concerns was in the early years of the blog is that if you just deconstruct and always are asking skeptical, yeah. doubting questions, that, that that is an important season to go through. But I don't think it's sustainable through the lifespan. I don't, I don't think mm. doubt is the main foundation of faith that's going to carry you through faith into your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, your 80s. Mm. And so that's the question that's now preoccupying me is how after you go through this kind of dark night of the soul, the the period of deconstruction, how how can faith be revitalized with joy and peace and enthusiasm uh, and grace? Mm. That's, that's a good point. Yeah, I can't yeah. think of anybody that falls in the category of like sage for me that has that, you know, anxious, deconstructive, uh, you know, kind of spiraling vibe about them. So I think, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Can you give Richard, for for our listeners that don't know you as much personally and kind of, can you help our listeners understand kind of your current context in terms of Ecclesi, in terms of church context, terms of your community, kind of what's right in, you know, Richard Beck's week in, week out in terms of spiritual community and and your world? Um, Yeah. So I think the change that I just described occurred in in a change of uh, church setting. So I I go to a a Church of Christ, the Highland Church of Christ in Abilene, Texas. But about five, six years ago, when this this turn occurred in my journey, I started uh, leading a Bible class in a prison, a maximum security prison north of my hometown for about 50 inmates every Monday. So Monday night, I'm out there at the prison. On Wednesday nights, I'm at a little mission church called Freedom Fellowship. And so it reaches out, we serve a meal, and it reaches out to very poor, homeless, people dealing with lots of addictions, lots of people on parole. And so I share life with people in the margins, kind of socioeconomic margins of my faith community. And that's kind of, those are my two main, I would say, church experiences, Monday night at the prison and Wednesday night at Freedom Fellowship. I still go to a a Church of Christ on Sundays, 
Um, but I feel kind of disconnected from that group. I mean, I'm still passionately involved because both of the ministries I talked about flow out of the Highland Church of Christ, but that's kind of a middle-class, normal Sunday morning. Everybody's dressed up, looks pretty good. And, uh, and so I love that church, but, but I'm really spiritually fed kind of in those two marginalized locations I spoke about. Got it. So we actually talk, so an interesting thing we've, we've had conversation with guests on is, you know, when you go to the prison and I, I'm not a part of a prison ministry, so I can't say from experience, but I doubt you're spending all this time, like unraveling the super deconstructive progress, you know, what we might deem as progressive theology about heaven. And I mean, maybe you do talk about that, but I, in your writing, I pick up, there's something, you know, even about the hymns that you sing or as a group or the, the scriptures that are read, like it's, it's a different world to a, to a certain extent. Um, and we've talked about almost like, is the deconstruct, is it almost a luxury? Is it almost like a, given our church setting, our socioeconomic setting, like just our stage of life, we're able to kind of kick back and just cut up about theology or about, you know, any of these things that are probably good conversations to have, but there's something that changes in the, in the margins, um, things just become more raw. And it's like, we're not going to sit around and talk about necessarily like what exactly is going to happen when we die as much as we might talk about the kingdom here and now and what Jesus is doing in your life here and now. And I think that's something you've written about even in terms of, I don't know, maybe even more of the charismatic things or God kind of shows up almost in a new, a different way in those environments than maybe on Sunday morning at Highland. How, how are those questions different? What, what do you find is the difference between like the, the really relevant faith questions that are being asked in the prison on a Monday night Versus like what's being asked when you get with a, you know, a, a 20 year old you know, student in your office. No, I agree with you. I think there's a, a sort of uh, privilege to doubt and because you can deconstruct your faith because at the end of the day, um, it's not supporting anything. Right? Like your hmm. life isn't going to fall apart. You can walk away from it. So the, those who are tend to be fairly materially comfortable can kind of treat faith as a, you know, as an intellectual exercise. And, but out of the prison, you know, faith is what gets a guy through the day. And my people, my friends who are poor, right? Faith is their, their belief in God it is what helps them hold on. And so you're much more hesitant to deconstruct out there because it's something live and vital and foundational. And so you're not going to go out there and start kicking out the props from under people. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't room for skeptical, critical questions in either of those locations, but but those tend to be second order questions. I don't lead with deconstruction. Um, I, I, I lead by making myself a student and let them teach me about what faith feels like to them. And so I try to, to avoid a kind of paternalistic posture in those locations and go, well, I'm the guy with the education and, and I know really about how to read the Bible. I really know, mm. you know, uh, uh, these things about faith. Instead, I try to check all that. And you're, and you're right. You mentioned the, the spirituality of the margins, not just in your city, you know, Athens or my town, but worldwide, it has a, it has a charismatic impulse to it. And by that, I just mean that God's alive and real and active and uh, where you get to these kind of academic, middle-class, elitist conversations, and it's very disenchanted. And by that, I mean not not enchanted. So God right. is right. distant. God's not as available to us. And so it becomes more of an intellectual exercise. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting because it, it does start to sound like like when you're I mean, I guess we're kind of in progressive circles. I don't, I don't really know where I'd map myself at the moment. But, you know, for my friends that are definitely more in, in the progressive stream, uh, it seems like, you know, going back to the more, I don't know how you describe them. Um, for somebody who had been in deconstruction, like as it, when they interact with somebody who um, – maybe it hasn't gone through that process yet. There tends, there does tend to kind of feel like this almost an elitist, like, Oh, you still think that I can't believe that you still think God is like that. Or, or like that, those, those sort of subtleties can, can be there in the relationship. Um, but it's interesting that as, as you know, America becomes less and less, you know, Christian. I mean, not that we necessarily ever were, we could debate that. I don't know. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, as, as faith, shifts and and more and more like of our friends are wanting to like meet in 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 living rooms with bread and wine and and ponder these interesting theological questions the global church in the global south is like exploding and it and they're not talking about the same things we're talking about um in a lot of this in in, in a lot of ways hmm. 
Interesting. No, yeah, I, I think, and that's one of the concerns I've had about about those kind of skeptical, doubting, progressive, post-evangelical, whatever you want to call it, people kind of on that journey is I kind of saw where that journey ended for a lot of people, and I wasn't really impressed with it. Mm. Like, where, where did it end? To, well, for, for example, a lot of here's what happens. Somebody, you know, they grow up in kind of an evangelical or conservative, religious, fundamentalist background, and then they start uh, questioning all these things about Scripture, and they start, you know, thinking through their, you know, these positions, and they go on this long, torturous journey to deconstruct their faith. And at the end of this long, torturous journey, all they've become are Democrats. <laughs> so you're so Republican, so we are Republican, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Those well, are the only two I'm, options. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying no, is, going. and here's the thing is, I have liberal political sensibilities. Like, I'm not judging, right. I'm not judging that political trajectory. Right. What I'm judging is, like, really? You just, like, went through all of this dark night of the soul, and you just... <laughs> really, at the end of the day, you just vote for a different party after four years? Like, that's that's what all this drama yeah. what it was about? Or... Yeah, what's the alternative? The other thing, oh, go ahead. Well, please do that. Thing, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, but the other thing that turns out is it's church is the where the, where if they do keep church, it's it's church becomes, you know, just like-minded friends gathering together over microbrews or a bottle of wine and a meal, and that's my new Eucharist. But again, when you look around the table, you're like, you know, every, everybody here is, like, easy for me, right? That's why they're here. Yeah, and so church yeah. becomes this comfortable place. And so there's nothing there, – there's no – there's nothing cruciform about that. Like you're like when Jesus looked at the person and said, when you go, you know, when you have a meal, go out and invite all of these odd people, these difficult people to your meal. So if that's what you mean by gathering at the table, that there's a homeless person there and there's a Republican and a Democrat sitting at the table, there's diversity amongst the minorities. Like like if, if it's a transgressive table, like a table that the world wouldn't collect on its own. Then, then, then that table to me looks like a cruciform table. Um, that that you look across the table and go, if if only for it's only because of Jesus that the two of us would have been breaking bread together today. Okay, if that's the case, yeah, that's Eucharist. But wow. that's not what a lot of these people are describing. What they're describing is kind of like, you know, hanging a couple out. of good friends just hanging out. And and to be clear, for, I want to be clear about this. For some seasons, particularly if you've been beaten up or wounded by a church, that season of of resting into those safe people and good relationships is 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 vital. Like it's therapeutic. I don't want to judge it, hmm. but at some point, um, at some point, you look around the room and go, "Okay, so when do we take up our cross together? Like when do we deny ourselves and take up the cross?" <laughs> Dude, that is so. That's not only so good, but that is so challenging because I will be totally real and say, I just kicking back with a bunch of people. I mean, I just, I love that. I really just like kicking it. it's back. Really nice. Yeah. <laughs> like the, the comfortability, there's a real comfortability. Yeah. And so do you recommend, like, are you then to go out? Is the Christian sort of posture then to actually go out and pursue those people and those mm. communities? Like, do we then, like, particularly, you know, I have a young family. Um, and thinking about, you know, some of us have kids, some of us don't, but we do, you know, I think at the heart of it, like we want that, right? Like I, I, I want to look around and see, despite what I know, you know, we, Steve and I both have been in house church communities, like consistent multi-year Sunday in Sunday out in house church. And it gets pretty darn real. Like it's pretty chaotic. There's really, right. It's like, it's not super pretty, but there is something real about like, we're all here, we're all contributing, but to add in folks from different demographics, uh, different socioeconomic statuses. It's a great ideal, but do we, uh, do we, should we, is the call to actually go and pursue, I guess Jesus in, what is it, Luke 16 that you just quoted? I mean, to go out and invite these people. Um, is that what you recommend? <laughs> like actually going out and pursuing those kind of trend, that kind of transgressive table to use your language? Yeah. I mean, I think, it's really hard to give very specific recommendations because ecclesiologies vary from, you know, a, a mainline kind of church to a house church. 
stages of life, like you're saying, it might be hard to practice a certain kind of hospitality when you're raising kids. Um, I mean, there are so many different variables in it. I, I, so I, I don't, I'd be really hesitant to say specifically, this is what you should do. But I do think, I don't know if you're, the word is to go out and seek out, but I do think there has to be a kind of a degree of intentionality about where you put yourself in the world. And that will change depending on where you are in the world and also depend on your developmental situation. But so, for example, the reason why I went out to the prison was because of that impulse. And so I just noticed as a college professor, all my friends were like middle class white people with PhDs. And that's comfortable for me. Um, But but so I had to like do something different to kind of move myself to the margins of my community. And so that's why I went out on Monday nights to the prison and Wednesday nights I started going to freedom because I just needed to be in a different a different location. And so I don't know if I was seeking those people out and inviting them into my home, but I put myself in a situation to where my friendships um, changed over time. And so where I spend time with and who I call my friends um, uh, has developed into, I think, a more cruciform kind of way. That was at least the, the attempt. But that's me, right? That was my, those are the choices that fit me. I think it'll be different for you and your listeners. Mm. What, um, so what type of uh, narrative is required to in order to create that sort of an, an ethic in, in a church community. Does that make sense? Like what what sort of um, I don't know. Maybe the term is like a like a, a the political imagination. Uh, we're we're kind of in this. We're starting a series on the kingdom and and trying to talk have conversations about what it means to live under the reign of God. But what narrative about what it means for God to be king is required to to create that type of a community or to create people that sense that type of impulse Mm. to go out and do that. Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing that we need to cultivate and the biggest thing that has been lost is a local imagination for what the church looks like. I think most Christians that I know have completely lost a local imagination for the kingdom of God. And so that the only, the only thing that dominates our imaginative space is uh, Washington, D.C., like the only mm. game in town, the only lever to pool to change the world or to make the kingdom come is electoral politics. And that's both on the left and the right. And so for better or for worse, Trump dominates our imaginations. What is he doing today? Mm. And what can we do to either you know agree with that guy or disagree with that guy? Like, like, mm. like, yeah. see, like the only imagination we have is Caesar. What is Caesar doing right. today? And what can we do to help Caesar or to block Caesar? And I just don't get that from the early church. Like, I don't think Jesus cared a whole lot about what was going back on back at Rome. And it doesn't seem to me like the in the Acts of the Apostles, the early church seemed to care a whole lot about what was going back at Rome. They seemed to be kind of indifferent about it. And they focused on these little these little church cells, these little trans, and, the, and those communities were transgressive. They were practicing a new way of life where people were interacting, slaves with um, the slaveholders and men and women and, and rich and poor were interacting in ways that they were not allowed to interact with in that Greco-Roman culture. And that's what attracted the world to those communities um, was the new kind of, the new quality of life that they we're experiencing and displaying to the world. And so to me, that's why local church is so important, because it gives the Christian another realm of political action. It gives them a kingdom imagination. So whatever Washington's doing, we're so busy at a particular address trying to make the kingdom come that that we mm. that our, our our lives are dominated by a completely different set of questions. Like, you know, Sister Jane is in the hospital. Who's going to go visit her? And, you know, and those those local things. And the other thing I think that's so important is not only is it closer to, I think, to the kingdom imagination of the first century church, they, those kinds of interactions like visiting a friend in, in a hospital or, or uh, you know, showing up at, at funerals and births and all that kind of is so humanizing and life-giving. The political conversation is so anxiety-ridden. People are just burning out on it. But if we could just cultivate a local imagination of caring for these people, 
boy, the mental health benefits alone (laughs) are just enormous. So less anxious and so more happy. So that to me, I think that's the story. We have to cultivate a local imagination. The world doesn't change by obsessing about Caesar. Mm. I, I imagine it'd be easy though to for for communities, particularly in a political context like ours, just to say like, "Oh well, God's in control. God's on the throne," um, and so you know whatever is happening out in Washington, it, it doesn't like to, to to then just sort of have sort of a passive resignation about the whole thing. Mm. Um, how do, so how do they, how do we do what you're advocating for while avoiding just a totally, a total passivity? Like it is what it is. Acquiescing to the empire, I guess. Yeah. Well, I think, I think because you're going to have to practice a kingdom politics. If church is just kind of like, if church is really about just people who've been saved, and that's all that church is, just the, you know, the congregation of the people that are going to heaven, then you're right. Then the church itself is kind of not practicing a counter empire politics. Mm. And so the, so the church has to be practicing a kingdom politics for it to be a countercultural community. If it's not, if it's just passive and um, isn't witnessing to that kind of transgressive community that Jesus created around himself, then you're, then you're right. It becomes a, a very spiritualized experience rather than a political one. So I, yeah, so you got to keep, so it's not just a local imagination, but it's a local imagination for a kingdom politics. I, I, do you have a question you're going to ask? No. I I'd mean, love yes, to, but can no. we, can we hit on this kingdom politics thing? What do you, what do you mean sure. by that? And also, Richard, sorry to interrupt. You've, we've used this term kind of a transgressive community, transgressive table. I think I have a hunch of what you mean there, but to unpack kind of both would be helpful. Yeah, yeah. So that's just a word. Transgressive is a word from the art community. So it is a transgressive art is like an art that it kind of offends your sensibilities. And so when I'm talking about a transgressive table or a transgressive community, what I'm talking about is, is a community that kind of cuts across the the... the what the community that I would prefer, or it's the the community that Empire would prefer. So I'm using it kind of almost as a synonym for cruciform, right? It, it, it's 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 the part that um w- is hard for us, the part that would involve some sort of sacrifice on our part for that. And so, so what does the kingdom politics looks like? Well. Right. So let's take, I don't know, let's take racism. Okay. Racial issues. So one way to look at racism is to look at, you know, let's pass a law um, at the, at the national level. And I'm not saying that we should not do that, but what I'm saying is like, so what would it look to practice reconciliation at this address where we meet? Like, what does that look, what's, what, what would be, living into the kingdom of God where there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. So that those those two, the wall of hostility existed between those communities. And so the early church, the sign of the gospel coming was that that wall of hostility had been broken down. And so I think we're still dealing with lots of different kinds of walls of hostility. And so we, 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 we the transgressive politics is to break down that wall of hostility in our midst, in, in our neighborhood. And you can pick any sort of social wall rich and poor, um, Republicans and Democrats. There's many sorts of walls that, that divide us. And so in our communities around the practices of Eucharist and table, we are trying to um, bridge those divides. And that is hard. That, that politics is hard. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 it's truth-telling. You got to tell the truth. It's not just being nice to each other. It's truth-telling. It's reconciliation. It's restorative justice. It's lots of hard you know, very hard things. Or, or let's take, you know, mass incarceration. Yes, we can we can talk about mass incarceration, the new Jim Crow, and we can focus on the abolition of prisons. So that's a very active political thing I care about. So I'm not denying there aren't political things. But yet, what I see at the local level are guys coming out of prison and they and they're just kind of dumped on the streets and they aren't employed. Nobody will nobody will employ them. And so so it's not just that I care about passing a law of Congress. There's a guy at my church on Wednesday that will have an ankle bracelet on during parole. What is the local politics that restores him back into community, that gives him hope? 
And so that's what I'm talking about. A kingdom politics is that face to face interaction with that person um, that needs to be reincorporated back into the kingdom of God. Mm, I love that. There's a uh, post, a particular blog post um, from, from 2016 that we'll give folks a link to, um, that was on your blog, Richard, on your blog, Richard. Yeah. The, the, the king, the kingdom comes when you get in my face, uh, which I love that, that this is an awesome post. That language. This I would highly recommend everyone read it. I, I think this what we've been talking about is kind of in this same vein. But I wanted to frame out even this idea of conflict and opposition. And you know, you you quote Galatians two, um, wh- which I'll read briefly two eleven to twelve. Um, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed, this is Paul speaking. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned for before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. And there's, of course, this is a lot we can unpack in the context of Galatians, and there's a, a many resources to do so. But at the crux of this is this very... The, Paul then opposes Peter because there was a particular culture in the church or in this community between Jews and Gentiles where it's like, yeah, I'm willing to uh, I'm willing to kind of be close to you or be a neighbor to you or be hospitable or be in fellowship with you at a, in a certain context, a certain time. But then ultimately, because you're a Gentile and everything that means, I'm going to withdraw. And Paul in that moment is actually, he said, I opposed him to his face. Like, this is not okay. And your point in the, in the blog, and I'm gonna let you expound, but is that in that moment, um, even during that opposition, like there is a working together to bring the, to, to focus on the kingdom and the way that ethic we're describing. Um, and in that moment, the kingdom is in our midst, is in the midst. Like that is when that shows up. Um, can you expound a little bit on, on that and on the passage? Yeah. I mean, it illustrates a lot of things we're talking about. Like one is it's a transgressive fellowship, right? For Jew and Gentile to eat together is offensive to the sensibilities. And that's why, you know, Peter and the the circumcision party pull back, and so what? So they're trying to create something that isn't not isn't going to be natural. It's an unnatural situation that they're trying to create. So the kingdom is breaking in, and it's cutting against the norms of the world. The wall of hostility is breaking down, so it's transgressive, but it's also local. So there, it's a kingdom politic. They are fighting this fight in that local space to say, in our midst, the kingdom is going to come. And so they're not worrying about Rome. They're not trying to, they're not marching in streets as activists. They are saying, in our midst, we are going to make the kingdom come. And what you realize is it is very, very hard work. It, it is not just a passive, well, God is on his throne. It is, if God is going to be on his throne, according to Paul, we must break bread with these people. That's what it means. That's the implication and so, therefore, that brings a sh- very sharp conflict there, um, in in the in the early church. And and so that's why this is not passivity. It's not just let's all just get along. This is why it's not just niceness. This kingdom politics. This is why it's the local labor to bring the kingdom coming, and it can be really really hard uh, for us to do. Now, and I think the trouble for us though, is that I, I think one of the reasons why we can't confront each other. Well, the way Paul confronted Peter is because I think we come to churches with deeper loyalties. Hmm. Like if I like if I came into my church and I started calling out uh, the treatment of prisoners, I tried calling out, hey, we need to take care of immigrants better. We would immediately, I think, in my church, separate into Republicans and Democrats. Like, like we would those those issues are already so politicized, we would immediately default into those positions and shut down because I think our deeper allegiances are to our political parties rather than the kingdom of God. Like we actually at the deepest level don't share Jesus in common. Jesus is just a tool yeah. both parties use to kind of justify. And so I, that's why I kind of despair about conversations about race or immigration or mass incarceration. I despair because I feel like the idols of our politics are so deep that until we rid ourselves of that idolatry, we can't get to where Peter and Paul were, which is the only thing they really had in common was Jesus. Like since they weren't going to since they weren't going to be fighting over Caesar because they didn't care, they could fight over what the cross meant. I don't think our churches can get to that conversation. 
Because I think wow, they they would automatically see a partisan politic issue mm. at stake, and um, and so that's kind of where I was joking earlier about like this long journey to become a a Democrat or a, or a thing. I think ultimately our our politics ha- have become come idols in a certain way. Golly, wow! I mean, good grief. Ha- one of the things that I see that happens uh, sometimes is where we'll, we'll 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 pick one of those issues. Maybe it's you know like the racism or or uh, another justice issue, and we'll go out and we'll like do something about it together as an organization, um, like a one-off. Yeah, like a one-off. So it's it's weird. We almost kind of like create this sort of like like an abstraction. Like we 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 ex- we we extract the, the the controversy from actual people. We go do something about it. We have a program. We have a a special Sunday or something, and then like we spend the next eight or ten weeks in self congratulation about how you know <laughs> yes you know <laughs> how we like serve know, the poor day we've like done. we're gonna yeah. end poverty in Which our of course, town. That's but... great. I mean, please, like we need to be doing that. There's no need to you know knock serving the poor day, but generally, I think it it exposes something just in in my own psyche, like individually, but also I think collectively. Where we we talk about this a lot, like we 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 want to be the heroes of our own story, and and it kind of keeps us from from I guess facing those issues like in our own hearts and minds and souls, like individually, but also together in relationship. Hmm. Um, how yeah. do we how do we face that? I mean, how like I feel like you've got your finger on something that's that's really true, but it's like, well, now what? I mean, what what do we? How, what are the practices? How do we cultivate? something in ourselves to, to address that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's hard because I do think when I talk to churches a lot about hospitality and I talk about, um, something that Samuel Wells has written really eloquently about he, he, Samuel Wells has a sermon online and he eventually wrote a book called the Nazareth manifesto. And he argues that like, we think the most important word in the Bible is for like doing things for people. And that's that political imagination, right? We're going to do this day for the poor, or we're going to advocate for these policy changes, and that's how the world is better. And and, and he's not dismissing for, mm-hmm. but he says the most important word of the Bible is actually with, learning to be with people. Mm-hmm. And and so that changes the register from kind of to, to like friendship. Um, so what we're ultimately trying to do is cultivate friendships on the margins and not like rescue people to be the hero. And so, so I think that's one thing to kind of keep in your mind always, which is, you know, is the aim of this ministry, is the aim of this march to be with people or is it something to do, you know, is it always for, and again, not, it's not to say that the four, like you said, is bad. It's not bad. It's good. You have to, there, there are laws can hurt people and good laws can help people. So let's, let's not take our off that ball. And I would also say to lots of churches that a lot of their four ministries become places of being uh, with. Like, so your classic example here is like a food bank, a food bank. So church has a food bank or clothing bank. That's a classic benevolence. We're doing this for the poor. So do you get rid of that? No, I don't think so, because sometimes those places become front porches to being with people. So I would argue a lot of this isn't to change anything, but just change your orientation to that. So like if I go work and spend an afternoon volunteering at a food bank, my goal isn't just to do this for people, but spend some time to kind of just linger, have coffee, get to know people's names, follow up with them later on. And and you find yourself over time um, knowing the people and developing friendships with them. And then the relationship moves in a very different direction than just I'm stocking cans at the food bank. So, so all That's that is a lot of the, a lot of four ministries, if done well, can become great leverages into being with people. So for example, like my prison ministry. So like in one sense, you could say I'm doing this for the inmates, but over time now friendships have emerged and so in many ways, I just feel myself as out there in solidarity. I'm just, I'm, I'm with them and I learn as much about God from them as I ever have brought in. So, so that's just something to kind of keep constantly in front of our minds is just how can I keep cultivating with uh, and friendship as, a, as an ultimate goal of what I'm trying to accomplish here? That's, that's really helpful to shift, shift a little bit. So 
part of, so Brian Zond uses this language, um, that I really appreciate when he talks about sort of the transactional piece and, and, and the transactional elements of Christianity versus this transform. And he's not setting up a total dichotomy, but a trans transaction versus, or, and a transformation piece. And he talks about, you know, often what we can observe is, you know, becoming a Christian in maybe the in a mainline sort of relatively conservative context can be about a transaction that takes place and that a real deep transformation, he uses this language of the optional upgrade that like discipleship is kind of the, the, the optional upgrade to, you know, just getting your sins forgiven or kind of in the, in the traditional narrative. Um, when I grew for me growing up, everything we're talking about, um, racial reconciliation, serving, being with, for the poor, that whole conversation around giving to the community, the politics, the kingdom, this was all great stuff. Um, but not really what it all was about. In right. other words, yeah. why are we doing, like, why, like, serve the poor days is great. Like, we should be doing stuff with the poor because Jesus did, and that's a great thing. But what it boils down to is, like, am I helping people become Christians, become disciples, really be mem- become members of our church, get to heaven, get their sins forgiven? Am I doing the, the sort of missional work of converting people? Um, and... I'd like to think I've shifted pretty significantly away from that, but I think it's also easy to to level and begin to tear out. Okay, well, but really what it boils down to as a church is we should be saving souls. Like we should be recruiting people. We would never use that language, but we should be recruiting people into the church so that this would grow and we'd become this bigger church where sins get forgiven. And there becomes this dichotomy, like these worlds that it's like, okay, this kingdom stuff, it sounds really great. And that is beautiful, but but let's not forget what it really all boils down to, which is yeah. like, are you going to heaven or or not? Like, are you actually a saved? Do you or have you been saved? Do you actually have salvation, or is this all kind of a waste of time? Um, that, uh, do you, Richard, have you experienced that kind of in your context at all? I know for for us, um, at least for me, I, this is a world I live in all the time, and and it can seem like again these worlds are kind of pitted against each other. Like you do the poor thing, you do the hospitality thing, or you do the missional work of kind of salvation. And it's and, like the hospitality is like supposed to be like a funnel into the yeah the evangelism. yeah. yeah. Any thoughts? I mean, yo, yeah. I mean, I think, I think ecclesiology, your ecclesiology, um, is always going to trump your vision of mission. You know, that's kind of what you're saying. If ultimately there's this big binary outcome, some are saved and some are lost at the end, right? The eschaton, judgment day. That view always start creeping back into the current situation, and that and that becomes the most pressing question. Eschatology question presses into the, the moment, and and creates priorities and agendas and attention between, you know, are we wasting our time given that these ultimate things really matter? So I yeah I agree. I think the most practical thing in your ministry is your eschatology. What ultimately matters. If you have a different eschatology about what the kingdom of God is looks like and what the purpose of what the kingdom of God is, the kingdom of God is restoring God's reign on earth. Um, and you can like look at N.T. Wright and lots of other people who kind of make this argument. Yeah. Then it, then you're not it creates it there, that tension evaporates because you have a different vision you know, of the kingdom going on. So I, I agree with you. I, I've seen it all the time, but I think ultimately there's no way to really to solve it until you get, you get clear on ultimately what your eschatology is. Because if you have one eschatology, you're right. There, there's, there's no doubt that that will, somebody's ultimate eternal destination is the ultimate question for right now. And if we keep delaying that or putting that off or not talking about it, then yeah, that's going to seem like a uh, distraction to a lot of people. So, so we can wade into that whole big thing. Right. I but, that's yeah, a whole world. Yeah. But mission, yeah. Mission is always going to flow out of that eschatology. So for yeah. you, so not to open this total can of worms, but I am curious. Open it, dude. Go for it. <laughs> so, so obviously <laughs> there is an eschatology that informs your practice, your life. And, and what it is that you do, you teach your ministries, you're doing these things at the prison, you're doing Freedom Fellowship, right, uh-huh. and the Sunday morning. What is, uh, can you give us the uh, kind of a snapshot or as deep as you want to go into what that eschatology is, what it is that you see and, and is informing your ministry? 
Yeah, I mean, I think if I was going to describe what I'm doing is that I am always and everywhere doing what Jesus did, which is proclaiming the imminent reign of God. And um, and that Jesus said the reign, that kingdom, that reign of God is in your midst. It is at a hand. It's not at some future judgment day. It is, a, it is the present reality that we are trying to restore. It is the, my ministry is praying the Lord's Prayer over and over again. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Like, that is my work. Every, I'm out at the prison because the, I'm trying to bring the kingdom of God in that, in that particular location. The reason why I practice the kingdom politics, like Peter and Paul fighting in Galatians, is because we're trying to make the kingdom of God come in that breaking of bread right there. So it is constantly – so my eschatology is we're constantly proclaiming and announcing the, the inbreaking reign of God and making that a live reality right here, right now. Like to me, that is ultimately what mission involves in that sense. If the kingdom of God is, however, saving your soul from eternal damnation, well, that's a different, that's a different praxis. But to me, I'm just proclaiming the reign of God on earth as it is in heaven. So that's my eschatology. Now, you might say, well, what – so what's the point of all that, you know, in the long run? Well, ultimately, I think the long run is the, the eschatological vision in like Colossians, right? Christ will reign over, he will defeat all enemies and he will ultimately reign in the end. And so I am his co-laborer in bringing that reign. Now, to be clear, I, I, I also lament the distinction between Jesus is your personal savior and social justice and how that's been divided up amongst the progressive mm. and the conservative Christians. I think that's one of the most damaging things in current Christianity right now mm. is how the conservatives are attending to, you know, the moral state of a person's soul, the reign of God in my heart and in my life and the, all the damage of sin in my life and how the, cons the liberals and the progressives are always out there on the social justice side. And I, I think, because if you here's the thing, anybody that's listening to this podcast that's spent any time at all on the margins of their society or in a prison knows it's both and the demons that afflict us are sy systemic and structural, but they're they're also there is addiction, there is violence, there is there is so much spiritual brokenness about God not being Lord in our lives. So that any, and, and so I think one of the great tricks the devil's played upon us, and this is, I articulate this in my book, Reviving Old Scratch, is this, is this split between the systemic and the moral or the, or the mm. spiritual and the political. I think if anybody that's spent any time again on the margins knows that it is a complex mixture of the two. And we have divided, we have split the baby and, and have given one half of the fight to the conservatives and one half to the progressives. And it's funny, too, because since both groups have a part of the truth, they just they just beat each other with that as if as if they have the whole story. So for like for every so for every story of like systemic inequality that the, the social justice wars can leverage the the conservatives can point to somebody who, you know, like a, uh, you can you can set out everything in front of them, and yet they spend their money on drugs. Like they could tell that story. Yeah. For, yeah. Uh, right. 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 And so they just throw these counter stories back and forth each other, as if moral accountability and systemic oppression have nothing to do with each other. But they're so interwoven and intermixed. And so, so I want to be clear. I think. Dealing with sin in our lives and experiencing the Lordship of Christ, you know, in, in to be personally saved is really, really important to fixing the world. It's not just a political problem, um, but to also to ignore the fact that the political problems don't create moral and generational incapacities is also ignoring a big part of the problem. So – I think we need to think more holistically about what it means to proclaim the reign of God. It's both. It's both and. It's not either or. Mm. Yeah. Wow. You talk a lot, Richard, about, <clears throat> and we're kind of moving towards that towards an end here. But um, you, you talk quite a bit, Stephen. If you'd rather do that, we could do go that. Ahead, go ahead. 
um, you read a bit about uh, quite a bit about hospitality. Um, and, and when we were talking both in, um, stranger God, which is your, your most recent book, but also on your blog, um, when we talk about hot to go back kind of the, to the eschatology piece and this idea of the kingdom in the midst, hospitality to me and this idea of the other and welcoming the other and be, being hospitable becomes then not a means to an end with it. So within the kind of, you know, what we talked about, the long-term framework of, well, you know, internal damnation is kind of imminent. We need to save souls. In that kind of model, in my experience, hospitality can become a means. It's a way of following people in or yeah. we should do this because it's a good thing um, versus when I show up and provide a meal to a needy single mother and and her son, and we spend time with one another, the kingdom breaks in. There's something real that happens there, and that's an end in itself in that moment. It it, it like that that is a moment of experiencing of of giving, not to win her over to anything, but just to be there with her. Um, my question, kind of expounding on that, on the, in terms of hospitality, how does this ethic of the kingdom of God coming here and now and kind of proclaiming the reign of God affect how we view ultimately the other and what hospitality looks like. Yeah. I mean, I think a good example of that is go back to Peter and Paul in Galatians because so why, why does, why does Paul go so sharply at Peter when he stops breaking bread with Gentiles? And for, if you read Galatians for Paul, the, the gospel was at stake. Like, like hospitality in the act wow. of hospitality or refusing the gospel was at stake. And so that's why he's so upset about it, because if we fail here, then the gospel is, you know, it's, it's, it's rendered moot. What Jesus has done to bind this, create this new creation, this new humanity, um, we haven't realized in our midst. If the gospel is about accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you know, you know, there's no reason Paul should have gotten so upset. He'd go, OK, fine, we'll have we'll have our. Gentile church over here on First Avenue, and yeah. you have your Jewish group over there on Seventh Avenue. And you guys you know, can have instruments, and we'll go a cappella. Yeah, 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 because because you know at the end of the day, everybody's accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, so we're all going to heaven. So you know, you do you, and we do us. But for for Paul, no, that division, the wall of hostility, is a gospel moment, and so that's why he's so upset. He's why because everything's at stake in the act of hospitality or its refusal. The gospel, the kingdom is at stake in that in that moment. And so I like to talk about how grace isn't just the forgiveness of sins. Grace is this social revolution um, that Paul was bringing all throughout the Mediterranean. These transgressive uh, communities that he was establishing were manifestations that the reign of God was being established in Ephesus, in Colossae, in Rome. Those are tangible outposts of the kingdom because of how they showed hospitality to people they would not have shown hospitality to otherwise, except for King Jesus. Hmm. You know, it's interesting too, because like when you think about the examples of hospitality, when they were, when they were extending the hospitality, whether it's like Jesus, I'm, I'm thinking just a, a few examples in the Bible, Jesus um, and the disciples on the road, um, who's like coming back from Emmaus or, or on, on the resurrection, and they have him into their home. Uh, and they don't, no one knows it's Jesus until he's already in their house and they're breaking bread together. Like no one knows that God is in the room at all until you've already, you've already done it. You've already extended it and you've already extended the hospitality. And it's in that, that somehow the realization came to be that, oh my gosh, this is, that is Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, that's a beautiful hospitality story. How, how oh. the risen Lord is recognized in the breaking of bread with strangers. Like that becomes the moment of like Christ is with us around the table, breaking bread with a stranger. Where else do you, do you see that in any other places in the Bible just as you, in your writings and as you think about it? Well, I mean, as far as God coming to us as a stranger yeah. and, you know, I mean, Matthew 25, you know, when did we ever see you, Lord? You know, when I was sick and you visited me and I was in prison. Um, he also pulls a child in the midst of the disciples and says, whenever you receive one of the least of these, you receive me, you've. You know, um, so I mean, there's lots of examples of where where when we receive somebody and we don't know it's Christ. Right. Because that's if you Matthew 25, they say, well, even the sheep. Right. They did all these things. They visited prisoners. They visited the sick. They they fed the hungry and sheltered the homeless. They still ask the question, 
when did we ever see you, Lord? So, mm. so they weren't. They, they, they even there in the, in that act were unaware that that was Christ in their in their midst. It was only later that they realized, oh, that was Christ in in their midst. So, um, so yeah, that's a long impulse that goes all the way through Scripture and even in Revelation. You know, I stand at the door and I knock, and so there's this idea that Christ is trying to come in and be welcomed, and we're not letting him in. Hmm. Mm. That's funny because you you would normally, I mean. I would hear that as a, I mean, often used in terms of like a conversion, like letting Jesus into your heart. But it sounds like what you're, you're kind of viewing it more as like, no, literally someone is knocking on your door and it very well may be Jesus, mm. but you won't know until you let him in. Mm-hmm. Yes. Gosh, that's interesting. Richard, for our listeners, you know, they're going to be folks from all over the place in different stages of life, of course. And my question is when you have folks come to you, even in your local church community, um, that are curious, um, that, that are feeling this impulse, like wanting to either make a shift maybe from a, you know, I've, I've thought this way previously and I want this kingdom ethic, this way of understanding kind of a Matthew five or six center, Matthew six center on, on earth as it is in heaven shift, a kingdom shift. I, I, I'm for that. I want that. I want to be a part of that, but I'm in the midst of a church maybe that, that may or may not use that language, or I don't necess- I may or may not have people in my community that I can partner with. Where do I kind of, where to begin kind of where, where do you, um, where do you recommend folks that are kind of on that journey and wanting to go deeper in terms of life and resource and practice? Um, w- kind of what is your sort of word of, of wisdom and advice given your experience on where people can turn, um, or begin to focus on personally to begin to cultivate these these very things we're we're talking about. Um, yeah, I mean, because the trouble when you start talking about like hospitality and these transgressive tables where you got all these marginalized people, and then and then you're you know you're talking listeners like you might have families or whatever like they just feel sunk. They just feel like oh my gosh, here's just one more place where I'm failing. And and I don't have any margin here in my life. And they just feel really they despair because the kind of the big heroic hospitality just doesn't seem anything that they're capable of. And then there's some of your listeners just like I'm really introverted. And so this whole big uh, (laughs) welcoming thing is just a big problem. So so I would say this. I hate to sell a book, but you can find this on my blog for free. Sell it. Sell it now. But but stranger, my you know I talk to a lot of churches about this hospitality, God coming to us in strangers. And so at the second half of my book, Stranger God, I talk about the little way of a Catholic saint, Teresa mm-hmm. of Lisieux, yeah. and and what I like about the little way is that it's not calling you to this huge heroic hospitality. It's calling you to like small acts of kindness and welcome in the life you currently got. And even if that life seems really domestic and really small and not really heroic, there's always somebody in your life that you can open yourself up to that you wouldn't have done otherwise, right? It's transgressive. It's cruciform. I would not normally have invited this person for lunch. I would not have normally been this patient with this coworker. Um, I probably wouldn't have crossed the room to greet this person at church, except for I'm trying to go against the grain of kind of the the narrowing it of my affections to just, the, you know, the people just like me, my friends, right? That intimate safe space. I'm trying to, and, and so you're just trying to diversify your friendships by moving towards people in these small acts of, of kindness. And so to me, I like to talk about the little way because it's something everybody could do. And so I'll look at churches all the time and say, well, I want to do this. How do I start? And I go, just pick somebody, Mm. you know, pick, pick somebody at work or somebody at church or somebody like your next door neighbor and just, you know, move towards them um, in in the, in the hope that when I welcome that person, God will come to me in that interaction. And so that's what I would say. Don't, don't beat yourself up and try to do this huge block party or a big dinner. Just there's somebody in your life you could be a little bit more kind, gentle, patient with, and sometimes it's in your own home. So, Mm -hmm. right. You can, you can practice hospitality to a child or to a spouse in cer- at certain seasons as well. Begin there. Begin with, begin with the people you already have and, and try to move towards people um, with a little bit of grace and practice there. And my, my, expect- my hunch is if you do that, God is going to show up on the other side of that. That's a wow. great last word. I love that. 
Wow. Well, Richard, thank you so much for spending time with us. And thank you just for the many, many years uh, of, of consistent blog writing. You've, you, you've written like every, or you've posted every weekday for years. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's been a long uh, time. It's, it's <laughs> the longest streak ever. <laughs> Uh, very impressive. And I just, uh, thanks. Yeah. Just thanks for your consistent, your work, uh, your influence in my life. And, uh, we will definitely be sure to, to point our listeners your way. Is there anywhere else that maybe our listeners could kind of come and find more of you? I mean, you get your blog, you've got the books. Is there any, any other avenue? Um, I think, I mean, other than my blog and my books, you can look on my blog at my speaking schedule and sometimes I'll show up in a town near you and, and I, lots, lots of readers show up in the audiences um, and I get, to, I get to meet people that way too. So as I move around the country uh, t- uh, speaking, they can maybe, maybe you know, come up after a talk or something. So I'm, I do a lot of traveling. So that's, that's, uh, that's the other way. Great. Or you, can, or you can call me, you know, have your church. Church call me and say I like him to come, and I do a lot of hospitality equipping for churches, and so that's how some people get to hang out with me too. They invite me to the church, and I spend a Saturday equipping their small group leaders or their staff, and then preach on a Sunday. I do that a lot. That's great. Any uh, off the top of your head coming to Georgia anytime soon? To your to your knowledge, I've been to Georgia. I've spoken in Atlanta a couple times in uh, different churches. I don't think I have anything coming up this year though. Cool. I've been I watching. I haven't seen anything. Yeah, I, yeah, I've yeah. been on it like white on rice. But we'll uh, we'll we'll see. Maybe we can get something going here. But right. again, Richard, thank you again. This has been just such a blessing, so helpful, and uh, we'll uh, continue to point listeners your way. Thanks a lot.